You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Lauren Groff. Lauren, welcome to Living Writers in this virtual space. Thank you. Thank you for being game for some some zooming and and talking about writing. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to to talking with you uh, today. Before we get started, I'll read your short bio from the back of the book that we've got on the table with us today. Florida. Lauren Groff is the New York Times bestselling author of three novels, The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies. A two-time finalist for the National Book Award, she has won the Penn O'Henry Award and been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She lives in Gainesville, Florida with her husband and sons. So that sounds <laughs> yes, like Yes, I you, do. Right? That's where that I'm coming like, from. Is that, is that, oh yeah, I was <laughs> I was just going to say, where are you speaking to us from, Lauren? Freezing Florida. So last night it got below freezing and we woke up to frost, which is not what you think of when you think of Florida, for sure. It's what you think of when you think of Ann Arbor. <laughs> Completely. I mean, there is snow on the ground here. So I don't, I'm not trying to oh. one-upmanship or so. <laughs> I'll see your frost and I'll add some snow and some yeah. <laughs> you've and you've lived in Gainesville now for quite like like a number of years like it is it a decade Lauren or 16 years at this point yeah it's been a very long time would you have ever imagined that you would kind of make make a, a base camp in Florida Never. No. So it's uh, not only what I imagine, never would have imagined that I would make a base camp here. I still wake up feeling as though I'm on the moon, right? It's, it's a place that's so hostile to everything that I am and believe in a lot of ways that, you know, I've had to carve out my own tiny little world within a world, my little microcosm here. And it's fine because, you know, I build walls and fortresses out of books. And anyone can live in books, right? If you're unhappy where where you're planted, you can bloom in books, I guess. What? How did? It, why? Why Gainesville then? How did it happen, Lauren? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. Well, so in the life of a writer, there are always compromises, right? So um, when I graduated from my MFA program in uh, Wisconsin. Um, we, we decided to come back here because I thought, you know, I'm writing literary fiction. I'll never make any money. I'll never, you know, sell any books. Um, and my husband took over a family business and at least he had, you know, a steady job. So we chose job security and the ability for me to, to just work on my art. And it ended up not working out, but I got very, very lucky. Right. Uh, so I ended up in this place that I'm not keen on, but I've learned to live in and um, was able to, to to write here. So it's been overall great. And now now it even you've written um, your your latest collection of short stories is titled Florida. 
um, I don't know I'm, why I'm holding it up and waving, <laughs> waving Florida around. And it looks like, yeah, it's like uh, got a, a, a Florida, like a cougar. Oh, no, panther, a Florida panther, right? I think, right? Um, yeah. And on the cover. So I guess Florida, I don't know, does it, does it grow on you? Because I feel like Michigan has grown on me, Lauren. I never thought I would be living in Michigan for, I think, I think you've got me beat right now, but I'm closing in on you with the number of years here in Michigan. Yeah. Well, I mean, it grows on me kind of like mold in a certain way. (laughs) (laughs) Like I actually have skin problems here, but um, yeah, I mean, there are things that I really love. Yeah, no, really. Like I actually like, I am not meant for humidity at all in any way. Then again, I did just go play an hour and a half of tennis in November. So yeah, there, there are some gives and some takes, right? Um, it's, 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 it's fine. It's where my kids were born. So I have to love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up in Florida. So I'll just for full disclosure. Oh. So, so I know I, yeah. Where? <laughs> in a town where, called- Where did you grow up? In Hope Sound. It's on the, the East Coast, um, near Stewart and West Palm Beach, like north of West Palm, and mm-hmm. um, but near Stewart and Jupiter. It's out of this world. <laughs> oh, I know Jupiter. Yeah. Have you read uh, The Prophet from Jupiter by Tony Early? No, but I should. I should then. Yeah, it's really great. It's a great short story. I love it very much. Oh my gosh, I will have to, because I was going to say, it's funny, I've, I've talked with Campbell McGrath, he's got that, that book uh, called Florida Poems, you know, and then Ann Waldman mm-hmm. with her, you know, Manatee Humanity uh, book, <laughs> and, th- and then now I just feel like this is just right, and now Florida, so, um, so Florida, <laughs> it's become the, it, the, the backdrop of the, um, well, many of the stories here and in the book, right? Um, not all, because we get to Europe too, but there's still a Florida connection because the characters I think are maybe based out of Tallahassee and that one or some, something. So Florida's in every single one of these stories. Um, like, why? Because is this something, <laughs> I don't know, because, yeah, is it something that you do because your your early novel was based in a, place that was Cooperstown, right? Not named it, but was where you also were living and of this place. Um, do you think it's natural? I don't know, for your writing that you're working with the place where you are or I don't know, where you're breathing? I do. Yeah. No, I, I think that's um it's necessary to know the place you're writing from, even if it's an imaginary place. So um, for me, I, I tend not to be able to write about a place until I've been away from it for a couple of years at least. And then through sort of the alchemy of, of memory and maybe nostalgia and um, imagery that sort of sharpens over the years, you start to come up with these stories that are the way that any story is made, right? It's, it's made through long, slow, 
um, development in the subconscious and then they, they come up to the surface. So um, with Florida, since I've lived here for so long, um, it took me probably five or six years to write about this place. But of course, Florida is not a single state. That's what a lot of people who've never been here uh, don't quite understand. It's it's a state of probably a hundred <laughs> different little states monkey breaded together. And um, my Gainesville is nothing like Stewart or Miami, you know what I mean? Um, and Florida is a state of mind also, and it's a very strange microcosm of America. It's um, politically uh, very bizarre and sort of a test ground. So I, I wanted to think through all of these things and I wanted to pay attention to this place um, in full ambivalence and with a full understanding of the darkness and the weirdness of this place, I wanted to just, you know, pay attention. That's it. Well, that's actually like getting that darkness and weirdness of the place is actually the real paying the tribute to the place. Cause that's, that's what it is. It's, it's really, it is complicated. It's, it's, yeah. It's, do you, there isn't a story I don't think yet in the keys have, have you been there yet? Have you driven across into the Keys and? Oh, I love the Keys. So the very, um, the second to last trip that I took before the pandemic struck was actually to the Key West Literary Writers um, Festival. And it was like the greatest thing ever, you know, like it was end of February and everyone was swimming in the like crystalline pools and eating key lime pie. And it was like, the, the, we, we had this party in, uh, in um, Ernest Hemingway's old house. And it was sort of like a mansion with all the gross cats. So many cats. <laughs> like, <laughs> so many cats. And, and it was so, it was magnificent. Uh, and then lockdown came really fast after that. And uh, so I would love to go back to Key West. Then again, one of my favorite writers on the planet, um, Joy Williams, has written so much about the Keys that I sort of feel like she's she's done it. I don't need to right. do it. Yeah. Joy's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, well, I guess you don't know Lauren, right? That what's going to marinate for you? Like, I mean, yeah. who knows? <laughs> um, so it's so funny to say that. So, about five years ago, I went to a uh, some sort of college visit, and it was wonderful and fun. And I made the mistake of saying, you know, I don't think I'll ever write historical fiction again. And lo and behold, my next two novels are historical fiction, right? So like, whatever you think you're not going to do, you're going to do it, right? Eventually at some point. <laughs> Meanwhile, you better look for an Airbnb for long-term rental in the Keys, right? Like that's what you're saying basically now. Yes. We're going to the Keys. Basically, basically, who knows? <laughs> well, well, Lauren, let's, um, let's talk about some of the 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 making of the stories because you said there there you needed to live there for a certain amount of time and have even if you were still like in the same place you had a distance from it in some way because this like the ideas had been with you for this this amount of time um i i i wanted to talk about the perspectives of 
of your characters too, because uh, I love that. I think across the board, they're all from a female perspective, characters, like all of them. Um, why, why does that, why is that important to you as, as, as a woman writer, maybe as a writer and as a woman and as a woman writer, I'll just glob that all together. Uh. Well, yes, there is one story um, at the Round Earth's Imagined Corners, which is not, you know, it's, it's a very distant third person, um, but it's a, it's a man who's sort of at the, the heart of the story. But yes, you're right. Oh, right, most Jude. Of the stories, in fact, I, of- I'm sorry, how could I forget Jude? Yeah, Jude, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but other than that, you're, uh, it's very, very female. Uh, and I think a lot of the things that I was uh, intensely interested in in this time are were these feelings of domesticity, motherhood, um, pushing against in a very tight way um, against um, wildness and and um, feralness and um, not having a home and um, sort of prosperity versus precarity. Um, and all of these things that came to fruition in a very um, tight and, and difficult way for me. And, and this was, you know, this I don't believe in story writing as catharsis or as, you know, um, psychotherapy, but we, we get to write about the things that are we're passionately interested in. And I'm deeply, deeply interested in all of these things right now, particularly um, the ideas of uh, how to raise boys in a world that's so misogynistic and uh, particularly the, the Trumpy America misogyni- misogynistic. So um, all of these things came together and there just it became an unbearable pressure and I had to get them out. And so that's how I, I write fiction. I write it sort of uh, like a volcano. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And is that how the drafting process, like, is it volcanic in a way, Lauren, you know, are you, yeah. How does it work for you when you're, you're mapping out one of these stories? Yeah. So I, you know, back when I was in grad school, I, um, I did what most people do is, you know, the, the deadline was coming up. I had to write a story. So I wrote a draft right for it. Um, but I learned in the years subsequent uh, to my MFA that I really needed to let a story sit in me and build its pressure for years and years at a time. So most of the stories in this book took years to write, not because you know I sat down and wrote a draft and threw it out. Sometimes that happened, but mostly because I was thinking about them and thinking about them and thinking about them until they became so intense that I couldn't actually see anything else. So I always, I'm always writing a novel, most of them fail. Um, But the days when I had to write short stories, I couldn't even see my novel. I I could only see the short story. So then I'd sit down, I would uh, do a first draft. I believe in uh, the first draft having, it has to be done in one sitting for me, which means that it's going to be incredibly bad. Right, so, um, and I write longhand. I can't read my own handwriting. I just get it out. And then every subsequent draft uh, takes what the sort of the eruption was and refines it in other longhand drafts. 
And then I do it probably anywhere from four to 10 different drafts like that. And then I finally have something that I know through the crystallization process, through uh, rewriting and rethinking over and over again has come close to my platonic ideal of what it should be. And then I put it on the computer and then everything happens. But I, I don't believe in the computer. I'm a Luddite. Yeah, it's bad. I love that. I love that. I'm a visual as I'm cheering. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I know I've got my typewriter just sitting behind me back there. Oh, it doesn't, a typewriter yeah. doesn't make your eyes go all wacky, you know, with squareness after hours and hours. Right. And not, neither does a notebook. Right. Yeah. No. And the beautiful thing, so I get like the thing about computers, they're so destructive because as soon as you write a phrase, it looks like it's a published phrase, right? It's almost, it looks as though you've already cast it in plaster and plaster is impossible to play with, right? It's not like clay. You can't just go back in there, like destroy it, rebuild it, right? Which you can do with paper or typewriters. You can get in there with a pen and just slash things and just have fun and play like you're a child again. So, um, you know, whenever I try to write something I, on the computer, it ends up being stilted and just not fun and not interesting. And I don't like it from the beginning. So I have to just ruin, ruin everything <laughs> over and over again until I get it. And I love that you're saying like with this long hand, like writing, because you have then um, the artifacts each step of the way, like you've got a map of ideas or things that were crossed out and the echoes of them, right? And the lines yeah. and the squiggly arrows. And whereas sometimes with a computer, I mean, people, I know uh, it might also be just we're moving into a different time where people won't work this way as much or, or know that it's a way of working, right? But I think because people will say, well, you just keep saving multiple copies of the doc or whatever, like whatever it is. But there is I definitely, I mean, it would be cool to put people like in like um, an MRI or take pictures of the brain, right? While you're writing in this longhand versus if you're typing on the computer or some. Yeah. It's so sensory. Right when you're writing um, in longhand or on the typewriter, you're like on the typewriter. You're hearing the music of the keys. Right, it's almost um, percussive in a certain way. And when you're writing longhand, uh, you can smell the ink. You can smell the paper. You can sort of see the pores in the paper. Um, your body is positioned in a an open-chested way. Right, you're not physically pushing away the keyboard the way that you do on a laptop. It's all very, very, you know, physiologically in the, in the animal sense, it's much closer, I think, to what the imagination wants, right? It doesn't want to be um, uh, confined to a tight keyboard. It wants to smell things. It wants to experience things in a, in a bodily way, I, I believe. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell it, sister. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know about you, but before, before we, we were meeting up today and again, thanks so much. I'm sorry to put you through like the whole sitting in front of another screen and zooming another person. Um, 
but it before we were meeting Lauren I went outside and just stood looking at like the light from the sunset on our pine tree just to be able to breathe a few outside you know breaths and look at the that light you know that light of yeah in in your oh that's my light oh I love it yeah in um enough about me <laughs> um in 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 the, in, in the in the first story, um, I love how the character is is always walking, is always moving beyond the walls of the house to go outside for necessary um, necessary reasons. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about how this character came to you and why why it's the lead story, Lauren? Mm -hmm. So this one's called um, Ghosts and Empties, and this is one of those stories that I. I had rhythmically in my head before I had anything else. And then I would go out for these long walks at night, looking into my neighbor's houses. And <laughs> um, slowly, I just sort of accumulated images. So this is a story that I, I began writing as a poet. Uh, and I, you know, I think poetry and short stories are cousins. Um, and, you know, the short story and the novel is a, are cousins too. So it's sort of the, the midway point between poetry and the novel. So I build short stories often through imagery first, and then out of that comes character, and out of that comes plot, right? So uh, what I would do is I would go for these walks, and um, I would find these, these visual images or sensory images, store them in my mind, and whatever I retained became part of the story. And then one day, you know, I just uh, sat down and wrote it all. I, this is the closest I've ever come to doing like a, a complete draft on the first draft. And I think I only had two drafts of this story, but only because I had both the rhythm and all the images all at once. And then that story happened. And I think that the story was my first story because I have many, many theories about short story collections. Um, and, you know, if you get me talking, I'll talk for like four hours about how to construct a short story collection architecturally, right? I believe oh. very, very deeply that there, yes, yeah, there's, there are, they're not rules, but there are things that one can do to make a short story collection incredibly powerful, right? And I think one of the things that I like to see in a short story collection is a first story that poses a question. And then with each subsequent story, that question is turned or complicated. So what I'm doing when I'm building a short story collection is listening to the way that the first initial question is turned and then turned and then turned. And then finally, the last story is always the one that for me fractures that essential initial question into a thousand different fragments. It's almost like a prismatic effect. So that is my vision of what a good short story collection does. And so this story was the only story that asked the fundamental question in a very clear way. And all the rest of the story sort of took it and turned it and turned it and turned it. And what, Lauren, what is the fundamental question? Right. So I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> oh, no. it's a, hey, it's just you no, and I. Know. I. <laughs> I know, I know. I think what 
what you want is for it not to be obvious. You want it to be sort of music that's underwater, that um, the reader is hearing without knowing that they're hearing it, I think. <clears throat> right. Like not too, um, yeah, not too hitting you over the head with a two by four kind of thing, obviously. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. you say that, yeah. like, your images are so like, clear because I I read Florida a while ago when I first got it and then I began rereading it again um uh on Monday and so uh like I was just thinking when you were saying that um I thought of how when Jude was losing his hearing like his it starts to become that people are coming from like the voices are like underwater and so it's 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 mm -hmm. so clear and that's so that's um Okay, so I'm sorry to have asked you such um, like a direct question about your your architecture for the question because I was interested to know then about the turning of them because I understand totally what you're saying and um, but but I'm sorry my brain's a bit tired right now but and so I can't I'm not able to figure out the turning now, which I would like to do in a conversation with yeah. you. Like, that's what I would expect from myself. So oh, I'm no. feeling a bit. No, wait, right no, now. Actually, but no, so this is one of those things that I would never actually admit to um, in a conversation with another person, because I feel like there are two separate experiences have happening right there's the writer's experience of putting the book together and then there's the reader's experience and the writer at a certain point has to see in a bifurcated way right they they have to see both their own experience but also the readers and so at, at the last 10 percent of creating any book is to get out of the writer's skin and into the readers and to project into that so i think part of that magic is not explaining things like that, right? Or like leaving those things open and mysterious. Yeah. Completely, 100%, yeah. 100%. The, and it's, and I think um, that's why I don't like sometimes even analyzing things about the text that I'm reading because how I read it is I want it to have that magic and that feeling mm -hmm. where it's like this, this looseness of experience and that you're still processing it, right? Like I might think of something um, a few months down the line here where I would be like, oh, I really wish I had a chance to ask Lauren that now or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like these moments where you're you're in it. Um, but sometimes because of this occasion, like our, you know, this is our conversation now, right? And it's a time capsule of now. So yeah. I don't have to have anxiety, let go of that, you know, it's okay, but we can have what we have right now, right? And- um, this is beautiful, thank you very much. In the middle of a pandemic, we're both cold and our, we've got pandemic brain, but we're, we're doing it, we're getting it done. Right, right, right. And then, and so in some way, Yes, yes. And, um, and, but I, so, but for me, then I was like thinking, oh, I want to think about the architecture of the book, even if it's in sort of a, like where I'm not, I don't have my, my finger on the pulse of the mystery real mm -hmm. exactly, but I can feel it. That's why I love this book. Like, um, so, but what I do think too, is that the, the voice of the, the mother, uh, main character in Ghost and Empties really connects strongly for me as one reader to the 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 Wyport like the the last story mother and so for me that felt like 
oh, I wonder if that's why Lauren put these two stories. Because I think there's a moment in Ghost and Empties when she says, because the struggle with motherhood, like I'm the kind of mother that I'm not going to make the dinner, but I'm going to take my children to Europe or so like, you know, for a month or whatever in the summer. And then that's where we are. The last story. Places yeah. go, right. Right. So that was, that was definitely intentional. I think um, one of my, one of my friends calls that character Florida woman. And so Florida woman, um, she's, she comes in and out of the book in sort of more or less focused ways. And there, she's sort of the spine of the book with different forays off into other experience. Um, but yeah, so that's definitely, it's supposed to, it's intended to be the same character in a different mode of telling for sure. And um, I'm not, it's not autofiction, right? She doesn't have my name, but it's not, not autobiographical. <laughs> I did not steal from my life in a large part <laughs> to write these things, for sure. I am possibly a mother who yelled too much at a certain point of her small children's lives, and I'm not proud of this, but um, at least I got a story out of it. <laughs> and does it, well, and I, and I love that you say this because sometimes, I don't know, I think some fiction writers get, upset if you say if there's any question that even kind of remotely skirts or could connect to this mm -hmm. idea right um even if it's someone who's kind of you know that their backstory and you know that the character is doing the exact same thing they're like how dare you <laughs> or and and i i know in a way it's because at a certain point i am met well i don't know but i will ask you lauren um because what happens for me at a certain point, so I wonder if it happens for you, if Florida woman isn't really you at a certain point, you know, mm -hmm. and you really genuinely feel that way, even though you know some of the streets she walked. Right. Yeah, so that's definitely part of it. Another part of it, though, I think possibly um, this is a larger part for me personally, is that uh, women writers are almost always conflated with their work, it, no matter what they're writing. Like someone is going to find the autobiographical and impose the autobiographical upon the text and then impose that reading upon the reader. Um, so it's very political. And so when I resist, um, I resist that interpretation being imposed upon me. Now, if I say, well, it's not autobiographical and that interpretation is coming from me, that's something that I'm free to say, right? So it's it's um, it's not someone else sort of reading that back into me. Um, the, this is why when, when I do do interviews of people, of women in particular, um, I'm very careful to never even ask questions about their lives, yeah. right? Because, um, I, I once saw Carl Ove Knausgaard in conversation um, at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and it was wonderful, except I got angrier and angrier as I was sitting in the audience listening to this man who's written millions of pages about his own life. And the questions were only questions about the text. And I have never once in an interview gotten only questions about text, right? This is something that women, um, the, the text feels in some ways um, inferior to the life um, sometimes. And I'm not saying here now, of course not, we're talking, you're being wonderful, but 
in general, I think it's a political stance to to, to make this conflation. Um, so I think that when I do talk to female writers in particular, I only talk about the work at hand. And then they're allowed, you know, to open the window and say, well, this actually happened to me. This is the story that happened. But I, I do think it's, we need to be really, really careful about that, especially with women or people of color. Um, you know, this is just something that we we cannot um, project onto other people for sure. Completely, yeah. completely. Yeah. And I was, I, and this is, I don't know, it's, I wasn't going to, even though I read some article, I forget who by, I didn't write it down, but just um, saying that, um, that you had like something about you were like the, some sort of autobiography or whatever, you know, like connecting you to the characters, some of them in, in Florida. And I was like, Ooh, I don't know. I mean, until you say it, which you yeah. did. I mean, I asked you also, I mean, looking back quickly, I asked you about place because I asked you about Cooperstown. And right. so I was connecting it directly to place that I had read about your life. So I did kind of do that, I guess. No, but you didn't though. And I, and I didn't say that in order to put you on the spot at all. In no, 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 that's okay. I don't mind. I, I like to be, cause I want the, I, I mean, I, yeah. And I, I think it's interesting cause I won't say like, cause I've been talking to other people with different books and I, I think with women, I think with everyone, I'm, I'm careful to, to yeah. kind of uh, adhere to the, the, the book, especially like yeah. the one that we have at, at hand. But I also was thinking, I don't know, this, this is like true confessions, Lauren, you know, as, as the night draws in. No, I was thinking <laughs> like, I, I don't also want to get stuck in ways of talking because I've been talking with writers, um, yeah now since 2007 and and I think sometimes the better conversations are when I loosen up from just being in the text and we talk about but but I think it's so interesting what you're saying because I think women are so um I hear what you're saying that it's it's completely political so yeah yeah no no, no. and you know, I've said this in other interviews and I and I feel bad saying it and it, this is like this is just in general because you know I've been I've up until um, March, I, I had had a lot of my life um, being out on the road and answering questions and everything. And it was just, uh, you know, having uh, 10 years of being asked question after question. So the, when I when my first book came out, there was a hysterical pregnancy and I happened to be pregnant at the time. And the very first question I got at the very first uh, reading I ever did, this lady stood up and asked me if my pregnancy was a hysteri hysterical one, right? So <laughs> oh God, the same festival, when I said something intending to have a joke and some very famous Irish writer stood up in the back and yelled at me for being arrogant. <laughs> So. Oh, wow. That's when you know you're doing the right thing, too. Especially if you can be like an Irish writer. I think that's awesome. I love yeah, Irish I writers. I love Ireland. But I also can see how that would be perfect. Then you're like, I have made it. Right? I mean, I would have if I hadn't been, you know, 20, what, eight and like moves my first thing ever and I was like oh this very famous man is screaming at me <laughs> oh my gosh 
why did he do that? Um, he was really angry. He was really, really mad. And in some ways it's great, right? Because it gave me the worst possible thing at the very, very beginning of my career. And I survived it and was able to move on. But it also is a little, it didn't radicalize me, but it definitely made me hyper aware of these things, right? This is something that um, happens over and over and over again. And, you know, it, it, we can make jokes about it, but I don't think he ever would have stood up and said that to a man. He would never have just stood there and said, you're so arrogant, especially for a first time writer, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened. And then I was like, well, I hope I don't like any of their books. This, I, love, my... I love their books. Oh, that's no. Oh, that's awful. That's gutting then. That's really... Yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's actually, it's good because it splits the the person from the from text, the, right? The, art, yeah. the object that's, of the, yeah. That's a really great lesson. It is. Because writers are horrible and, and difficult. <laughs> and so if you can, if you can dislike a writer, but love their work, that's the great, that's the best thing possible. <laughs> You are saying true things, Lauren Groff. You are saying <laughs> true things. Um, oh, I yeah. I'm so I'm so glad you did bring this up because I I I have like these different things circled in my notes and gender is one of the and I wanted to ask if you like also did you go through or maybe you always read but um like these periods where you would read Grace Paley. Amy Hempel, Lori Moore, and like, and you know, Ann Carson, Lydia Davis, like where you just be absorbing all, did you do that? Janet Kaufman, like where you just read a bunch of women in a, or were you always doing that? Like as, as like a growing writer, you know, what was it like? Yeah, what was it like for you? Oh, absolutely. So I actually did not realize, well, I did intellectually, but not emotionally realize that um, living women could also be authors until college, which sounds incredibly stupid, but you know, I was an autodidact, right? And, and I found my books through the library sale, right? They would sell, sell books for 10 cents a piece and I would save up all summer and buy, you know, 800 books and then just spend wow. the whole of the year just like reading these wormy, stinking, like old ex libra books mostly by men right because yeah. that's that me yeah. too like as a young person reading all by men. dead men right dead and men. in and in uh high school the only book by a relatively contemporary woman that we read was the bell jar right sylvia plath and she'd been oh. dead for i don't know uh 40 years at that point um uh, maybe maybe fewer but um so I got to college, I spent a year in France and then I got to college and I took this poetry class and it just blew my mind, right? That, that women could be out there writing, but we only studied, I think, two women. And then I took a short fiction class and this is the first time in my life I'd ever read short stories. Right? I'd read O. Henry, but O. Henry's terrible. Um, and you know, but it's not, it's fine. He's like, he's like, <laughs> the um, I love that. <laughs> He's also like I did years of research into a book that I was writing about Kitamo Basan until I realized that he was a horrible human being, especially when he had tertiary syphilis. And he was just like the worst. Anyway, I took this class 
And I started reading stories by Lori Moore, by Amy Hempel, by Grace Paley, all the people that you mentioned. And, I, and it blew my mind, right? Like to see that this was not only feasible, that, but that people were doing it and, and breaking the form. Tony Kidbambara, like I love her so much. I want her to come back, right? Like in to, to culture as the master that she was, right? So, um, so it, it was so exciting and that's when sort of the clouds parted and like someone spoke down to me and said, you're not a poet, <laughs> you're a fiction writer. And then I went, you know, I've had, I read a lot, a lot because that's what I do when I can't work. And a lot of times, you know, I can't work and I don't have another job. So, um, so I'm always reading and I get into these like intense fan states, right? Um, this year in the pandemic, I had a project that got me out of bed every single day with just absolute glee and joy. And it was to read all of Shakespeare's plays one after the other again. Oh. Yeah, and it was the greatest thing I have done in a very long time. And the year before I read all of Proust, I was at um, Radcliffe and I took a philosophy class. So it was the philosophy of Proust, which is like, it blew my mind. Um, and so we read all of Proust together and it was so magnificent and wonderful. So. You know, I have these incredible projects right now. I'm, I'm memorizing poetry, and it's it's it makes you so excited about the possibilities of what literature can be and how you take it into yourself and make it part of yourself, right? It's just so gleeful and beautiful and joyous, and it's art alive, being like living in you. It's just it's so magnificent. What, are, um, what what poems? What what poets right now, Lauren? What, so yeah. I just memorized uh, "Carrie and Comfort" by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, oh, that's wow. you know, and that's one of those poems that you know I would. Can you say it? Can you say it now? Can you? I can say it. Yeah, I don't want to say the whole thing because it's really long. It's like it's usually are right. Fourteen long, yeah. But it's um not all not carrying comfort despair not feast on thee not on twist like they may be these last strands of man and me or most weary cry i can no more i can can something hope wish day come not choose not to be and then it goes on for you know 10 other lines or something um but it's just uh, it's one of the things where like you know with insomnia in the middle of the night you can stare at the ceiling and just feel these lines in you just sort of growing and it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. So you, but so you're using some of the daytime hours when you're as a side project, but then you can go to it in the night during for the insomnia. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gosh, that is so, such a great idea. Um, I'm part of a, yes. Oh, I, I have to say memorizing poetry is, is right now one of the joys of my life. Like, it's just, you know, and you don't have to get it exactly right. You know, you have to get the the images and think about it. And um, I did the, the time before I memorized this poem and, you know, through the memorization process too, you start to open up cracks in the poem and you start to see, oh my gosh, so this is what the underlying structure is. And um, there are, there are parallels in sort of shifted imagery and oh it's so wonderful it's so wonderful because you you've mentioned you know you went to france and you know french or so like learned it right so yeah. did you ever do and then for um i won't say it the right way but guy dupin must well anyway guy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 
but have you like done these uh, translations ever where because that's an exercise of language especially with poems yeah once with Neruda I was doing it and you just start thinking oh that translator got it wrong because you're somehow in it in a different way Oh, yeah. So um, back when I was writing this Gita Mobisan, um, um novel, I actually translated the 12 short stories that I, I really loved of his. He hasn't written more than 12 good short stories. And actually the last three were uh, borderline. Oh, <laughs> but and that's why I dropped the project. But, um, but yeah, I did that. Um, you know what? Something that's really, really fun to do if you know, the work is, or the, the, the fiction or the poetry is just not coming to you at any moment, is taking a poem in a, a language you don't actually speak or, or are able to read, and then like saying it aloud to yourself until you get a rhythm, and then you start to transliterate, <laughs> you start to, yes. um, to create your own poem in English, based on the rhythms and the sounds that these these weird Czesław Milosz poems in Polish are giving you, it's so wonderful. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love that you're saying you say it out loud enough to yourself so you hear yeah. it until it becomes something else. That's like also, do you know the musician Kristen Hirsch, Lauren? Um, no, I've heard of Kristen Hirsch, but I, I don't know if I know the work. Cause I think you would love her. And she, sometimes she just starts with sounds in her guitar mm-hmm. and then she has lyrics later, but it's all, and you mentioned that about ghosts and empties about how you have the rhythm mm-hmm. of the language, right? First. And then you got the images from the, that stayed with you, like the woman mm-hmm. in her great Dane or the young man through the glass on his a treadmill and, um, right. What is that rhythm? When you said that, like, what do you mean by that? And can we hear it in the prose as it is now? Oh yeah. Do you want to do you want to actually hear it, and then I'll tell you what yes. the is? Okay. Love so that. I'll just. Um, this is the <clears throat> first few paragraph. I have somehow become a woman who yells because I do not want to be a woman who yells, whose little children walk around with frozen watchful faces. I have taken to lacing on my running shoes after dinner and going out into the twilight streets for a walk, leaving the undressing and sluicing and reading and singing and tucking in of the voice of my husband, a man who does not yell. The neighborhood goes dark as I walk, and a second neighborhood unrolls atop the daytime one. We have few streetlights, and those I pass under make my shadow frolic. It lags behind me, gallops to my feet, gambles on ahead. The only other illumination is from the windows in the house as I pass, and the moon that orders me to look up, look up. Feral cats start underfoot, bird of paradise flowers poke out of the shadows, smells are exhaled into the air, oak dust, slime mold, camphor. So what I was thinking at the beginning was that... Um, there is a beat of walking. She's walking and you can feel it in the words, right? And that was my rhythm. Yeah. <clears throat> From the beginning. Could you could you read the first few lines of at the round like go to the Jude story? Like Sure. Yeah. Can, this would be kind of if you don't mind. I think this would be kind of cool to hear <laughs> how the rhythm then is and and the lines. I actually hadn't the lines are so long. The like the long line long yeah. line lines. Well, I knew that this story from the beginning was going to be much longer than a lot of the other stories. In so I have a general shape of what a story is going to be before I even start to write it. So I knew that, and so I wanted the long line as almost a um, a fractal of the long story in a certain way. Okay. 
Jude was born in a cracker-style house at the edge of a swamp that boiled with unnamed species of reptiles. Few people lived in the center of Florida then. Air conditioning was for the rich, and the rest compensated with high-ceiling sleeping porches, abject fans. Jude's father was a herpetologist at the university, and if snakes hadn't slipped their way into the hot house, his father would have filled it with them anyway. So it's a little bit more colloquial, right? It's a little bit more of a, of a spoken voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like such a hypocrite because before before we started recording this, everyone, I said to Lauren, no, I won't ask you to read anything. I'm just interested to know what you will read. <laughs> and I'm like, and now will you read this line? Like that's the most directive. I'm sorry. I know I love it. It's it's better than me just choosing the wrong thing. I'm glad. I've got to say, dogs go wolf. This story like breaks my heart. It's yeah, me too. I put all the love of my sister into it. Um, yeah. Do you want me to read that too, or or no? Oh, like oh, I don't have to. It's all good. Or yeah, or a part of it, whatever part of it you you want to out loud, Lauren. Okay, I'll just do the beginning because I, I am unable to choose anything anymore. This is my pandemic brain. <laughs> the storm came and erased the quiet. Well, the older sister thought, an island is never really quiet. Even without the storm, there were waves and wind and air conditioners and generators and animals moving out there in the dark. What the storm had erased was the silence from the other cabin. For hours, there'd been no laughing, no bottle caps falling, none of the bickering that the girls had grown used to over the past two days. This was because there were no more adults. They'd been left alone on the island, the two little girls, four and seven. Pretty little things, strangers called them. What dolls? Their faces were exactly like their mothers. Hoochies and waiting, their mother joked, but she watched them anxiously from the corner of her eye. She was a good mother. I love that line. Yeah, it makes sense that that you like started as a poet and these are how like, it's part of the making. Yeah. Oh, I love sentences so much. I can get so passionate about sentences and the way that the sentence um, is so uh, endlessly flexible and plastic and welcoming. And um, I, I do think a sentence to form and function um, have to be spiritually united, right? And so like the form and the function of the story and the sentence has to be speaking to each other in a very real and, and, and profound way. So, yeah. yeah. And, and along these lines, Lauren, you mentioned a moment ago, like knowing the shape when you have a story, because you said earlier, it also has to sit, stay with you for a while, right? The story until it's building up tension and then erupts, right? Um, how do you know the shape? What do you mean by that? Or do you just have a sense that it's going to be a longer story or it's going to be a this kind of, but it sounded like when you said you knew the shape of it, it felt different to me hearing you say that. Yeah. So I'm, um, I don't think I'm a synesthete like Nabokov, but I do think that I, I see things, right? Like um, in ways that uh, I think I've trained myself to see things. So I actually think of the shape of, fictional narratives in three-dimensional ways, as though you could sort of throw it up into the air <clears throat> and have it sort of spin in front of you and you can and you can sort of see the way that it's smooth or textured, uh, the bends in it, 
the the actual physical shape of it. It's just it's yeah. Why I know it's there, no, I love that. Why is that? Um, what part of the process does that when you're working on a story? Mm -hmm. Is it something that happens all the time or what, how do you feel or see that texture of it? Yeah, so it, so I'm constantly testing things out, right? So, so if I have a few images and I have a rhythm, then I'll say, lift up the structure that I have at the moment and really um, test it and, and see if it works. And if it doesn't, I'll modify it, right? So like, um, I think, for instance, the shape of Ghosts and Empties to me, and this is not possibly the same for a lot of people, but it's a, it's almost, um, it's prism-like and it's a, a pyramid shape. Um, and it has to be, to me, um, in places quite rough, and I can see the facets that are quite rough and other facets that are, are very, very smooth. So when I spin it, I can, I can sort of see the story like that. And I know that sounds very strange. It's just something that I trained myself to do. Well, it sounds like, well, okay. So, so cause we're an audio medium, obviously, but for this one instance, I, I get, I'm seeing you on zoom and it looks like to me that you're looking at the story again. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I can like just I can then in that moment, you were looking at the story. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I could see it. And so you are you seeing images of the narrator at the beginning and then the narrator who she is at the end as like like and is she different like is she in different places and multiple places or is it not as literal as that it is more of a texture like you're saying the smooth and the rough like even maybe with light coming into it like why it was important that okay yeah no it's not literal it's um it's like i mean it's i can it's tangible and yet metaphorical at the same time. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's, um, it, you just lift it up off the page. You sort of see the way that things are, have fallen already. And this is one of the things that I've been asking the Michigan students, you know, what their projects at hands, if they, if they could actually lift it up into the air and see it three-dimensionally. And I think often they haven't, haven't been asked this question, but it's so helpful, right? Because often, they're like, oh yeah, no, I have a caldera, right? <laughs> like I mean, right? Like this is actually an interesting structural problem that I I um, need to look at more carefully. Or um, someone said they had like a comet, um, and just a sort of changing the language with which we talk about art makes us see it in different ways, right? And and so um, I think it's just like it's one of those tools and those toys that you can play around with when you're talking about narrative it's it's yeah yeah good and you mentioned seeing like when we were talking about the short stories because you you said you're always writing a novel and short stories like you're mm -hmm. always right both both mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but that's but then there's a day when you decide you are going to write the first draft of the the story and you said i can't even see the novel right so right. does that mean in your mind, it's just like the story kind of swoops in and there's mm -hmm. nothing else to be even thought or? Yeah, not only is there no other novel, my family disappears. <laughs> just like, sometimes it's great and sometimes it's horrible, right? I have missed dentist appointments, 
tennis lessons. I've missed everything for them. They, they just like, it's not, you know, my kids are old enough now to be able to fend for themselves if they have to. Um, they can make, you know, hot dogs, whatever. Um, but, you know, I will, I will just disassociate until I can get this first draft down. And they're not good drafts, so it doesn't take that long. You know, if someone were on fire, I would probably know enough to go put them out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's just it's like this thing because it's been building for so long and I just want it out of me I just want to you know like I just need to get it get it on the paper but that waiting until that moment is actually really hard to do and often I will ruin a story by putting it on the paper too soon for sure and then it has to go back in to the well and a lot of times, you know, 10 years later, it'll come out again as something different. Um, but, you know, it, for me, a short story has to come out of that, that place of like, I absolutely must write it right now. And so how is the, the novel, because the novel then is different, because it seems like what you're describing is very particular experience, right? Yeah. How do you know? And can there be multiple novels too? Or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was just working on three novels at once. Um, yeah, no, what I love about writing novels, which is also, you know, the worst part about writing novels, is that they take so long, right? So you wake up and you're committed to this partner, right? This is your partner. And sometimes you just hate your partner, right? They're just like, they're, every breath they take is the devil. Um, <laughs> But, but you just like stick with it until you're, you're done. And a lot of times um, I, will, I will stop writing a novel when I, I see that I, I am not yet ready to write it, but I always need something, some long project to commit to. I mean, I'm just, you know, I guess a monogamist in that way. Like I, I love to have the structure of this one thing that I absolutely must touch every day um, or else, you know, I die. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's, it's, um, and, but the beautiful, other beautiful thing about doing multiple projects at once is you go where the energy is, right? So, so if there's a day when you're just like, I absolutely hate novel A, I can't even function thinking about it. Well, maybe there's also novel B that you can doodle or think about or flip through color swatches to sort of understand toward what are you directing this particular scene. You can do research, right? It's, it's just that there's a constant, it's play. It's just playful, right? We're, we're, what, this is the thing. Writers take themselves so seriously. You know, we think that what we're doing is going to kill us, um, but it's all just play. We're just giant children, just like getting our fingers dirty. And so finding the way to make it an expression of delight as opposed to an expression of world weariness or sadness. And, so, and a lot of, you know, our sadness needs to come out into, into our work. Our darkness needs to come out into our work. But to get there, we need to play, right? And this, we, are, we are children, we need to play, we're animals, we need to play. So um, I think 
the process of having many, many different things going all at once is just one of those beautiful things to, to let yourself off the hook, but also keep working. <laughs> Lauren, I've loved talking with you today. I Thanks. love talking with you. Thanks so much. My like, pleasure. Hug. <laughs> I hug. I wish we could hug. But next time I come to Ann Arbor, we'll definitely, we'll sit down and have some tea. That would be lovely. That would be so lovely. Thanks, Lauren. You've been listening to Living Writers today. Lauren Groff, her book of short stories, Florida. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Welcome back to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Charlie Brigham. Alongside me are my co-hosts Lucas Vargas and Andrew Miller. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing all right. I mean, hard to believe now that I only have one more semester at this fine academic institution. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, one more semester and uh, no more football games. It's just a wild concept. First senior class in a long time to not go 0-4 against Ohio State. Yeah, that is that is very true. And you there know, you let's, go. let's just let's just get right into that. So Michigan will not play Ohio State. What uh I guess we'll go to you first, Miller. Obviously, Michigan in no kind of consideration for the college football playoff, but what does Michigan not playing OSU do for OSU's chances of making the playoff? It directly hinders it. It really does. I mean, uh, there's four teams that will probably have more wins than they do without uh, any losses. So you have to imagine those teams would probably get consideration. But, like, the playoff selection committee has made mistakes before. Alabama won a championship the year they probably shouldn't have been in the first place. So you never know what's going to happen. How are you going to say they won the national championship and they shouldn't have been there? Because you should be in the playoffs based on if you win if you win certain games, you should be able you shouldn't just be able to win get your playoff spot based on how well you recruit. I think they justified it by winning the national championship. Sure, you can justify it. Like, like say like um the Chiefs just had like a weird season where like they missed the playoffs by like a seat up like a game, and then so, well then they and then we just said no we're it's gonna put the Chiefs in the game. It's not even remotely close to the same thing. One it is a little close. It one is one you have qualifiers and tiebreakers the other one people pick it yeah like the qualifier 